Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you do love us. Thankful that you have given us the ability to love you and to love others. And I pray that our love would be evident and obvious and not just words on our lips. Father, I know for all of it, it is so easy to say we love you. It's so easy to say we love everybody. But I pray that our lives really do show that. I pray, Lord, now that you would help us to understand, but more than understand today, Lord, because I know the words in your scripture today are easy to comprehend and understand. It's not difficult. But living it out in our lives is extremely difficult. So I pray that you would give us the ability and give us the desire to be people who live out your truth that we will learn today. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We are in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, if you want to follow along. We have been learning over the last few weeks about how to have joy in our lives. And today we're going to learn that there is joy in unity. I have a friend who shares memes all day long. I don't know which is worse, that he has a job and he has the time to find these memes and to post them on Facebook, or that I have time all day long with my job to read them and think about them and comment on them. But anyway, he shared this one this week. As you can see, it is a Bible. On one side of the Bible, it says, Saul loves David. On the other side, it says Saul seeks to kill David. And it says that escalated quickly. And it's true. And then someone commented on the meme and said this. They were at a Baptist meeting. That's why it went from love to hate so quickly. Unfortunately, there's some truth to that. Not just in any Baptist meeting, but any meeting of Christians. Because Christians, even though God has called us to be one, are often people who are divided. And it has a long, we have a long history of division. In fact, Paul is writing this letter in part because there's division in the church at Philippi. This is first century church. As powerful as they were, they had their problems too. And one was division. So Paul writes to them. And since this is a problem in every church throughout all of Christianity, throughout all history, it is a letter for all of us. As you look at Christian history, you can see how division has happened throughout the years. The eastern part of the church and the western part of the church split. After that, there was the Protestants that split from the Catholics. And from that, many Protestant denominations, even till almost 100 years later, Baptist in 1609. But of course, there's not just one group of Baptists. There are many groups of Baptists. Uh, when I was in Ohio, in Marysville, we had a Southern Baptist Church, a General Association of Regular Baptist Church. We had an American Baptist Church. We had, a, I think, a Free Will Baptist Church and a Primitive Baptist Church. And this is just in one town. And then we had a bunch of independent Baptist churches. They didn't like any of the other Baptists. That's why they were just independent. Okay? So there are so many Baptist churches and so many other types of denominations that exist. So to the, anyone who observes Christianity, if someone knows anything about it and you say, I'm a Christian, they could say, well, which one are you? You know, are you Eastern Orthodox? Are you Catholic? Are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you Lutheran? Are you independent? What are you? 
And you do realize that all those different Christian groups came about because there was an argument that couldn't be settled. And so the group said, you go your way and we'll go our way. That's where all of those groups came from. Came from division. Inside of a church, whatever the name is on the sign out front, there is potential for division. The younger folks versus the older folks. The new people to the church versus the ones who have been there their whole lives. Everything that's outside of the church comes inside to the church. So whether it's a race or whether it's economics or whether it is ancestry, whether it's what your preferences are for sporting teams or whatever it is, what is outside comes in. And we can be divided among those things and be in our little cliques even inside the church. We do have our personal preferences for the style of preaching we like, the style of music we like, the kind of seats we like, the, the kind of lighting we like. I mean, you just think about the temperature of the sanctuary. We have our preferences about that, don't we? And so we can have our preferences. There's no right, there's no wrong. Whether the temperature is 72, whether it's 68 or 74, does that really matter? No, but we have our preferences about that. And sometimes those preferences become places of division. We have our favorite preachers, musicians, teachers. Isn't that true? Uh, from what we consume in our Christian culture, we have our TV preachers that we like to watch, the type of music we like to listen to. And all these things can be points of division. I, I'm thankful that Olive Branch is not a church where we are fighting over insignificant issues or fighting over even major theological things. This is a church that is united, but I'm also aware that it doesn't take much for Satan to have a seed of division planted and for it to quickly grow and a church to be quickly divided. And so we always have to be on guard and always be aware of the temptation to focus on something that separates us rather than focusing on what unites us. And when we focus on what divides us, we lose sight of our mission and why we're here. And that's why Satan always wants to plant those seeds of division. When we're divided, we're focused on that thing that divides us, whatever it is. We're not focused on serving God. We're not focused on spreading the gospel. We're not focused on fellowship or teaching. We're focused on the thing that we're fighting over. And then we're focused on winning. No one wants to be on the losing side of an argument. So you're focused on winning, coming up with arguments, trying to persuade, trying to fight against. And now what has happened, instead of us united serving the Lord and reaching out, we are now inside. We have us versus them. In a church that's divided is always taking the focus off what's important. Its ministry, its mission is always paused, become ineffective, unable to accomplish what God has called every church to do. And that's why division is so toxic, and we must guard against it. And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, where our... Unity lies, what our unity looks like, and more importantly, how to do it. 
So he begins by showing us that unity begins with Jesus Christ. That's why I like this slide because the T is a cross. That's kind of clever, right? I guess, I don't know. Christ is the unity, is the foundation of our unity. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So Paul uses the phrase if. If these things exist, encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship with the Spirit, affection and mercy. When you hear the words if, then it can mean Kind of two different things. In English, as it did also in Greek. It could mean, if this is here, or if you do this, then this may happen. And sometimes it can be unknown. If you work hard, you will make a lot of money. Well, is that always true? No. So it's kind of if, and then maybe. But sometimes, even in English, when we say, for example, you're at a Christian concert... And someone on stage says, if you love Jesus, let me hear you shout. Well, is there any question about the if part of it? When that's said, you can sit around and say, well, do I love Jesus? I don't know. If I do, I should shout. If I don't, I should sit down, I guess. I, you know, I just don't know. No, you know. So really then what someone is saying, since you love Jesus, let me hear you shout. So I want you to hear these words this way, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship with the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy. In other words, Paul is saying, you already have this because you have Jesus Christ. We have unity. We don't have to create the unity. We have this already. I think that's an important thing to remember. Because sometimes we have this impression that because we all are different, that we then need to somehow bring ourselves together. No, we are already together. God has done that. Our job is to make sure we don't fall apart. <laughs> hey, that's what we do. And in some ways, that's a much easier job. We don't have to try to become united. We are united. You may think of it this way. In your family, your family is already your family. You can't unfamily your family. I know you may want to at times. I know you may try to at times. But your family, that's who they are. You are already that. We are already the family of God. We are already united in Christ. We have these things. Encouragement, love, Fellowship in the Spirit, affection and mercy. These are what God has given us as our foundation of unity. It exists. It's here. We don't have to create it. But we do have to keep this unity. And Paul also tells us what unity looks like above this foundation. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what unity looks like. Thinking the same way. Paul doesn't mean we all think the same thing about every issue. That's not only impossible, that's not even a good thing. 
Because God made us all unique individuals with unique personalities, unique experiences. He did not make us robots with the same program that spit out the same information. And when we become Christians, he doesn't put in a Christian program into our brain. And then we all think the exact same thing about every issue. What Paul is saying here is that we are to think the same way in this sense, that our, as we're thinking about issues, we are to think about them with love, with the same purpose, with a desire for unity. So that's what he means when he says think the same way. Not think the same ways about everything, but as we think about how we disagree, And where there's differences, are we thinking about them considering the perspective of who disagrees with us? Are we thinking in the sense of love? Are we thinking in the sense of the purpose that we have? If we are, then we are thinking the same way. If not, then we're divided. I like this modern day proverb that says you don't have to see eye to eye to walk arm in arm. In other words... You can disagree with someone about something, yet still be united. You can still walk down the street together, accomplishing one goal, united together, even though you disagree. Because you don't have to agree on every single thing about every single issue to be united. So Paul says, unity looks like thinking the same way, having the same love, that love of God by which he saved us, that love of God that he has given us. Jesus said it perfectly, as you would expect him to. Love God and love others. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. That's the love that is unity. When that love exists in us, we are united. He says to be united in spirit. He's kind of repeating himself as preachers often do. He talked about a fellowship in the spirit. This phrase actually literally is to be soulmates. We think about that in romantic ways, don't we? That we're looking for our soulmate when we're single. And when we get married, that's what we say. I have found my soulmate. When we get divorced, well, that wasn't my soulmate. (laughs) I'll find the right, I don't know. Anyway, we look for our soulmate, but it doesn't have to be a romantic thing. Here, Paul is saying we are united. Our, Our souls Uh, the very being of who we are is together. So again, think about our minds, our love, our souls. Do you, you see when that is all together and then we have one purpose, you see how this is a good description of unity. Mind, heart, soul, united one purpose of glorifying God, accomplishing the purpose that he's given every church to worship him, to disciple, to fellowship together and evangelize the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. And if we do that as soulmates, the love of God and thinking the same way, God can do amazing things through that unity. Paul talks about the unity And I don't think anyone would say, hey, pastor, I'm I'm all for more division. I'm not for that unity stuff. I mean, no one's going to say that, are we? I mean, we understand. 
If we're united, we can do great things for God. If we're fighting amongst ourselves, we're not going to get anywhere. You, you know that to be the case, not only in church, but any walk of life. But this is the hard part, doing it. No one disagrees with the importance of it, but how do we find that Christian unity? And that's what Paul says next. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. This right here is the way for unity, and really it is the way for joy in your life. It's said in two ways. To consider other people better than yourself and to think of others' needs as you think of your own. I think the simplest way to think about it is to think about babies. Look at this nice chubby boy or girl. Who knows which one it is? Happy. You know, babies are the exact opposite of what Paul says to do. And that's okay. That's what babies are supposed to be. But babies never think about someone else's interests. Babies never think about someone else before themselves. Babies only think about themselves. And if you're a parent, you know that. Because if they thought about you, they would not cry at 2 o'clock in the morning. They would wait until you woke up. If they cared about you and thought about you, they would mess their diapers at a convenient time for you. But babies don't. Babies only care about themselves, and babies can't talk, so all babies can do is cry to let you know they need something. And like I said, that is fine for babies. This is the problem. We've got elementary age kids, teenagers, adults, senior citizens who haven't grown up. That's the problem. They're still babies. Now they can talk, so they don't have to cry, although sometimes they cry and scream. But, but these immature people still only think about themselves and what they need. They haven't grown up. They're still babies. So maybe a way to think about how to be a Christian who brings unity is to be the opposite of a baby. Okay? Or to grow up, to be mature. So let's look at this a little closer because it is hard to do, although it's easy to understand. Paul says to consider others as more important than yourself. I want you to think about this. People who are arrogant and who are selfish, they look down on other people. And they see other people only as a means to getting something they want. That type of person will see someone, if I can't, and they say this, if I can't get anything from that person, I don't need them. When they see someone, they can get something for themselves. They say, aha, I'm going to befriend that person. I'm going to oppress that person. I'm going to hurt that person. I don't care what it takes, but I'm going to get from them what I need and what I want. And that's the problem when you look down on people. You see them as a means to an end. You have no concern for them as a person. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't. Be selfish, don't be conceited, don't be arrogant, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Again, that is wanting something from yourself. Don't see people that way. See them as better than you. 
It's a different perspective. If you humble yourself and you see people as better than you, then you will consider them. You'll consider their interests. You'll consider their needs. You'll consider them as an individual. So Paul says, do that. It's more of a way to change our perspective. Because as long as we stay selfish, we will not consider other people. When we humble ourselves, we will consider others. And Paul says to consider them and consider their interests as you also consider your own. In other words, Paul nor anyone has to tell us to look out for ourselves. We do that by ourselves. We don't need anyone to tell us that or to teach us that. And Paul isn't saying to ignore your interests. But he's saying as you are considering your interests and what you want and what you need, also consider other people's interests. If you do that, it will change your perspective on what you want and what you need. You see how this brings unity? When there's division, again, the focus is on me. I have an opinion, and I want to win the argument, and I want to be on the winning side, and I want my way. And it's me against you. But if you have a different perspective, and now if there's something you disagree about, and you think, wait a minute, let me think about you, how you feel how you look at it, how you understand it. Let me think about how what I'm saying affects you. Let me think about what your needs are as I'm thinking about my needs. And you see, as you change that perspective, now it's not me against you. It's me understanding you, considering you. And then I might be able to understand, hey, we can compromise. Hey, you were right all along. I was wrong. Hey, where you are right now and what you're going through, I need to stop thinking about myself. I need to help you. And the focus now isn't on me versus you. Now the focus is on us. And that's how this perspective of considering others greater than ourselves and considering others' interests as we consider our own brings unity and heals division. Paul says there's one person who's a perfect example of this attitude. And you don't have to think very long to know who that is. If you've ever been in Sunday school and the teacher asked a question and you gave one answer, you would write nine out of ten times. Jesus. Right? Jesus is the example of the one who had this attitude. Paul says in the rest of the verses, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. What did Jesus do that we should follow his example? Jesus, in a sense, thought about us before himself. It's maybe not how you usually think about God, but in reality that is true. See, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one from eternity past, living in heaven with angels who obey, angels who worship. God could have stayed there and lived there and existed that way for eternity and ignored us. He could have created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. We are their children. We sinned. The whole world's messed up because of sin. He could have said, well, I gave you a chance. You screwed it up. Good luck. He could have. He doesn't deserve, we don't deserve to be saved or to be loved. God didn't have to do anything for us. He could have said, your sin will keep me from your presence and you're going to be away from me forever and death is going to be your penalty and you'll spend it forever in hell. And he could have left it at that. He could have said, you're going to hell? I don't care. He could have. He said there was nothing that he had to do. But he thought about us. He thought about how much he loved us, about why he had created us, why he wanted to have a relationship with us, how he wanted to spend forever with us. And he thought about us. Of course, his, his love, because he is love, in one sense you could say, well, he didn't, I mean, he had a choice, but he's love. I mean, how could a God who loves just see the mess and not want to do anything about it? And salvation itself isn't all about us. In fact, it's first of all about God. But obviously, we are the ones that he saves. And he is the one, we are the ones that he brings into a relationship with him. And he thought about us and became a man. But not just a man. He became a servant. These verses here remind us that God didn't hold on to being God. The, the, the uh, translation here says exploited, but it also can be translated, he didn't see equality with God as something to hold on to or to grasp. I think this is the idea. God could have just held on to being God and stayed there, but he was willing to come to this earth and to become a man. And like I said, to become a servant. In heaven, as I said, the angels worshipped, served him, obeyed him. When he came to this earth, people rejected him, mocked him, spit on him, crucified him, hated him, rejoiced at his death. You see, he didn't just become a man. He humbled himself to the point of sacrifice and of death. And he died in the most humiliating way, to die on a cross. In the Old Testament, it says anyone who hangs on a tree is to be cursed. And even the Romans reserved crucifixion for the rebels, the worst of criminals in their mind. Roman citizens were never executed by crucifixion. It was too cruel of a punishment, too humiliating 
of a way to die for a Roman. They only did it to foreigners, aliens. Yet that's how far Jesus humbled himself. Do you see, not just from heaven to earth, but from heaven to earth, to a man, to a servant, to death on a cross. I think Paul's point is to see how far God came down because he thought of us, because he loved us, because he served us and died for us. That's the attitude that we must have. When he humbled himself, the Father exalted him. And this is the principle of life that doesn't seem to make sense. When people try to exalt themselves, God brings them down. Because when people are trying to exalt themselves, they want to be God. God says, oh, there's only one God. That's me. So down you go. But when we are like Christ and we humble ourselves and serve, that's when God exalts. And I want to read these verses again because they tell us a beautiful truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone who's ever exalted himself is going to be humbled and is going to kneel before the Lord and is going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. God does the same for us. We humble ourselves and we serve and we think of others before ourselves and we think of other, in, other people's interests before our own. If we do that, God is going to exalt us and in heaven's going to reward us. That's not necessarily the reason why we do it, but it's a truth and it's a principle of life. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I also want to encourage you in one last way. I know that all of you are great in serving other people because I've seen it. But I want you to maybe take it a step farther because sometimes, even in my own life, this is what I do when I serve people. I really am more of a helper rather than a server. I think someone who helps, generally out of right motive, helps someone. But usually we do something that we enjoy uh, we usually do it with some, something in return. We may not get something back from the person, but we feel good about ourselves. We feel like we've done something. Uh, we help them in doing what we want. We help them when it's convenient for us. We help them and we feel good about it. But if you notice in all of that helping, a lot of it's still about me. What I like to do when it's convenient for me so that I get something in return. And even when we as Christians do great things for God, sometimes our attitude doesn't get any farther than that. But we're called to be servants. What's the difference? Well, I'm going to 
to share with you. I'm not going to mention the church nor the ministry. It was a ministry within a church. I'm not going to tell you when, where, because I don't want to disparage anyone. But there was a time in this ministry, in this church, where, I'll be honest with you, I didn't like what I was doing, didn't like the people I was doing it for, (laughs) didn't like that I was getting no thanks in return, and it was not convenient, it was not fun, and I thought, why am I doing this? I could be sitting at home watching TV like everybody else is doing, but here I am serving again. These people I don't like, doing what I don't like, (laughs) not getting anything in return. And that's when I had to be reminded that I am a servant. I don't think most of us know what it's like to actually be a servant because we haven't been there. I think probably that would be a good thing for all of us, at least for one day to be treated like a servant, to be treated like a slave. Then we might have a better understanding of what it means and how to serve genuinely other people. Let me give you a hint. I think a servant will serve people he doesn't like. No, liking or not liking has nothing to do with it. It's the other person. See, that's the point. The perspective of helping is often focused still on me. The perspective of serving is always on the other person. So it doesn't matter whether I personally like the person or not. A servant serves regardless. A servant does it when it's not convenient. Because, again, it's not about me. Maybe it's a lousy time for me, but it's the right time for them. And maybe it's work that I don't particularly like to do, but it's what they need. And I may receive no personal satisfaction. I may do it, and they never say thank you. They never return the favor. And actually, at the end of it, I just feel tired and worn out and don't have this sense of euphoria that I did something for someone. But it doesn't matter because it's not about me. And again, the focus is on them and enabling them to succeed, to be a better person, to have their needs or wants met, rather than me receiving something in return. You may argue with me it's a matter of semantics. It's a matter of splitting hairs. There's not a huge difference. And maybe in certain situations you're right. Maybe helping, serving is all kind of mixed together and we have mixed motives But what I'm trying to help you see is that we need to go beyond simply doing what we enjoy for people that we like, getting something in return. Nothing wrong with doing that, and we should do a lot of that. But that's all we do. There's people that we're not serving. Because, again, maybe it's not convenient. We don't particularly like them. We're doing things we don't like. And that's where we miss out. And that's when our attitude is not quite like that of Jesus, who had a servant attitude. As I said, went down and down and down and down in humility to be brought up by God the Father. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful that you love us. We are thankful, Jesus, that you became a man, became a servant humbled yourself and died on a cross to redeem us and to save us and to conquer sin and conquer death. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have given us an example of how to live our lives as servants and how to bring unity. 
I pray that our joy would be complete as we serve and as we think of others before ourselves and consider their interests before our own. Father, my prayer is that you would move us beyond understanding and move us to action. Because I know, Lord, this attitude that we are to have is some ways so unnatural to us. Because so many of us are still those little babies and small children inside. Lord, help us to grow up, to be mature. And I pray for unity for this church. I pray for unity for your Christian kingdom on this earth. Lord, we must be united, and I pray that it be so. I pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.